We do praise you, Father. Thank you that your love for us is better than we could ever imagine. We thank you that you are the God of this city. You're the king of these people, the Lord of this nation. And as your children, we know that you will never let us go. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And Lord, we need to hear from your word. We need to be built up. We need to be challenged. And yes, we even need to be convicted of our sin. And so speak through me, Jesus. In fact, I pray that it would be as if you were in this room physically and you were speaking to this congregation, that they would not see me, that they would see you. So prepare hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. My uh, religious or spiritual heritage goes back through my great-grandfather on my uh, uh, mother's side, um, living in poor Coolville, Ohio. Uh, as a young 16-year-old, he came to the Lord, the only one in his family, and he ended up fathering, obviously, my, my grandfather and so on. He was an intimidating figure, and that intimidating personality was passed on to my my grandfather. My grandfather was sort of a, of a legend in southeastern Ohio. Um, he had a personality. I, I grew up not experiencing this because I guess I was like him, and he's just my grandfather, but people were scared to death of him, which made him a great coach. He would be considered to be uh, a Bobby Knight, that type of personality, that intensity. You all know who Bobby Knight is? Okay, the coach for Indiana threw a chair across the, the floor and so on. And so, um, my grandfather, when he got out of World War II, he coached a small team in Ohio, and they were undefeated his first year as a coach. Okay, so he was a very well-known coach. He was a natural fit to be a teacher, an event principal, and then a school administrator. Um, he paddled kids. Well, you could do that back then with an actual paddle. There's a story that's told over and over again of when uh, one of the boys got in trouble and he was sent to the principal, Mr. Cole's office. And fortunately, he had some uh, matches in his back pocket. So when he got paddled three times, the matches caught on fire. There was hazing that was going on within the first school district he was involved in, and uh, the older students would come in and interrupt the class and take the young freshmen out and haze them. Well, they hurt one of his football players, and that wasn't acceptable to my grandfather. So um, before practice, he went, stormed into the locker room and grabbed those kids and lifted them up off the ground and slammed them into his lockers and said, you do it again, you're done. And he effectively ended all hazing in that school district. Now, you can't do that stuff anymore, but that's who he was. He was also a very godly man. Um, he always went to church, in all church events. He loved the Lord. He'd read his Bible. He would pray. He gave liberally. Um, he got involved as being an elder and leader in the church. In fact, when the new pastor, who had been there for five years, um, was thinking about leaving because of some tension in the church of, on the topic of who would run the church, either him or, or, or the church board, my grandfather threw his weight behind this young pastor and that was all it took. And that pastor stayed there for like 30 some years and the church grew and flourished and so on. 
he went up into the level of the Wesleyan Church and the district level and so on and served at that level. A very, very godly man. My grandmother um, had a definite strong faith in Jesus Christ and she was just a loving grandmother. When I was in college, I lived near their, their home and I, on Sundays I would go to church, see my grandfather, I'd drive home with my laundry. My grandmother would make us a meal, she would do my laundry and I'd go back to school. Okay? So it's a nice setup for me. Um, very loving, grandmother loved to play games with us and so on, so it was just, I had these godly grandparents that I grew up with. And then there's this side. We were, I apologize if I told you a story, I don't think I have, I was reminded of it and it just fits so perfectly here. My grandmother had a um, bladder problem and so I ended up buying this gray and red van, so in the back she could pee in this coffee can when they were going on long trips. Eventually God healed her of that, but eventually it was bladder cancer that took her life. But I was in this van coming down from Michigan, down I-75. Now I-75 runs through Michigan all the way down the United States into Florida. We were coming down, the three of us, in this van my grandfather was driving, my grandmother and I was in, in the, the second row of seats. Coming up over a hill, and to the right of us, there were these cones because there was construction going on. Well, at the bottom of the hill, you can imagine having to look back up if you don't see any cars coming, but this is on a highway where, at that point in time, I don't think the speed limit was 65, I think it was still 55. This young man in this car with his wife and two kids pulled out, and, but as we were just coming over the top, and we're going 55 miles an hour, he's pulling out, and guess what we had to do? My grandfather had to slam on the brakes. And of course he did, this godly man did what, quite frankly, we all would do. He laid on the horn, and he let this young man know that that wasn't acceptable. Now, if it had ended there, that'd be one thing. But what happened was what we now know, which had not been identified or named back then, road rage. Now, you know my own confessions of that, and I know that most of you here have some level of road rage in you. And I've said before, I'll say it again. Whenever I'm driving, it's just my lane, and just get out of the way. And everything will be fine in, in, in the world. So he slams on the horn, and you know, they, oh, I can't believe this guy did this, and so on and so forth. And we're driving, and this young man was offended. And obviously my grandfather was offended. So he sped up, then he slammed on the brakes, causing my grandfather to slam on the brakes. Then he sped up and slammed on the brakes, causing my grandfather to slam on the brakes. Big mistake. My grandfather had a CB in his van. Traveling with us were two other family members. I can't remember what we were coming back from, but there was my, uh, really, uh, he was like a cousin to us, but he wasn't related to us by blood, but he, my grandfather had raised him. Uh, Bruce Kinney was in a, a car. I think it was at that time even a Chevy Citation, so how old I am. 
and he had someone in his car with him. And then behind Bruce was Steve Frisbee, a relation of ours, with I can't remember who else was in his car. And we were on our way back to, to Columbus and then down to Athens where they lived. Bruce or Steve lived in, in the Columbus area. So my grandfather and my grandmother, who are now in this full fit of road rage, turn on the CB. They call Bruce and Steve. And my grandfather stays behind this young family. Steve pulls up in front of him. My grandfather then pulls to the side, and behind him is Bruce. Now, this guy has no idea what's going on. And they all slow down, and slow down, and slow down. Now, you can imagine, I don't know if I was like somewhere between 12 to 15 years old, I am watching this. And what was so funny, but also so telling, is being godly people, my grandparents would not swear. So this is what they did. They rolled down their window and they said, they held their fingers up like this, said, you're this big, you're this big. That's what they were doing. Now in their hearts, they were guilty of, uh, as if they had sworn and said everything. They were, you know, but they wouldn't do that because they were, you didn't swear. It was hypocritical, but it is what it is. And I remember being caught up in all this and looking and seeing this young man and his wife and those two kids in the back, and he was scared to death, white knuckle driving. And then they, we had just left and went on. So this is my godly parents, grandparents, that I'd seen read their Bibles and pray and grew up in the church acting this way. Well, why? Why did they do that? And you know the answer to this for the sermon series is they got offended because somebody pulled out in front of them. And it's probably, probably not to that extent, but if someone cuts you off or pulls out in front of you, do you not get offended? Do you not hit the horn? Or does something not come out of your mouth that you don't want anyone in this church to ever hear? Okay, right? It happens. But I want to share briefly two Old Testament stories this morning. We'll start with the story of Joseph. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 37. We're going to fly through the story of Joseph and the story of David. And I want to look at their lives, the offenses that they experienced and their reaction to them. In Genesis chapter 37, it's the very first book of the Bible, it says this, starting in verse 3 and 4. I was thinking about putting all these verses up there, but it'd be too many, so just follow along as best you can. It says, now Israel, meaning Jacob loved Joseph more than all his sons. Jacob had the 12 sons of Israel, okay? Joseph was one of them. Because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a very colored or multicolored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Genesis 37, three and four. There's the first offense. Joseph was innocent, did nothing wrong. He was just a favored son and all his brothers hated him. Now, Joseph, as you know, the story has dreams that reveal the future to him, and he foolishly shares his dreams of him, Joseph, ruling over his brothers. 
and we find the response in verses eight and 11. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really gonna rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. So we have hatred, deep-seated hatred and jealousy now. Now you heard me say this before, I'll say it again, offense leads to unresolved anger. If you don't deal with that, it will lead to bitterness and resentment, which then will lead to evil deeds, some sort of wickedness. And this is what they did, verses 23 and 25. So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the multicolored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat a meal. And I included verse 25 to show you how cold their hearts were. They intended to kill him. He would die of starvation and with no water in this pit. And they just casually go on with their day. They sit down to eat a meal. And I can imagine that Joseph probably screamed and pled with them and begged them and so on. And they had meant nothing to these people. Their hatred of him was so deep. And just like Cain... Abel and Cain, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Out of offense, Joseph's brothers sought to murder him. Now eventually they did what? They sold him as a slave. But by selling him as a slave, his brothers took away his inheritance and his family. You need to understand this. Only killing Joseph would have been worse. Because when a person was sold as a slave at that time to another country, he remained a slave until he died. The woman he married would be a slave. All his children would be slaves. And it would have been hard to have been born a slave, but it was indescribably worse to have been born an heir of wealth, only to have it wrongly stripped away from you. In fact, it would have been easier to never have known what could have been for Joseph, but he was, in essence, a living, dead man. And of course, he was sold to Potiphar of Egypt. And the Lord blessed him. In Genesis 39, it says the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Unfortunately, he was an attractive young man. And Potiphar's wife made sexual advances towards him, which he rejected all of them. But Potiphar's wife got offended, accuses Joseph of, of rape. And what happened to Joseph? Genesis 39, 20 and 21. It says Joseph's master took him, put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. So once again, innocent Joseph is mistreated and he suffers greatly. Now surely he must have thought something like this. I have faithfully served my master and what do I get for my loyalty? Would you not be tempted to think that? Well, how did Joseph suffer? Believe it or not, the Psalms tell us a little bit of what Joseph suffered while in jail. Psalm 105, 16 and 18 says this. The Lord said, he called for a famine upon the land. He broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Verse 18, they afflicted him with fetters. He himself was laid in iron. In other words, he had what around his legs and feet? 
iron chains. And what they did at that time in prison, they gave you just enough food to live so you could suffer and slowly die. And Joseph did nothing wrong. But again, God was with Joseph, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And after years in jail, Joseph accurately interprets two dreams of servants of Pharaoh, one for a cupbearer, one for a baker. He only asks that they remember him because he was wrongfully imprisoned. And when the cupbearer was restored to his original position, as Joseph predicted, what did this cupbearer do? Genesis 40, 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, forgot him. And for two more years, Joseph remained in prison. Now, you know the rest of the story, right? Joseph interprets two of Pharaoh's dreams that reveal 14 years of the future and a coming famine. And Joseph rises to become second in command of all Egypt. And because of the famine, God in his sovereignty brings his brothers and his family back to Egypt and reunites him with Joseph. Now, everything that happened to Joseph was a direct result of who? All the suffering in his life was a direct result of his brothers, right? See how it traces back to his brothers? How would you respond to brothers that tried to murder you? The wrongful years of imprisonment, all of that, all the pain and suffering, the coldness, the the physical pain, the emotional pain, the stress, all of that. Well, turn to Genesis 45, starting in verse 4. This is how Joseph responded. So then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Verse 15, he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. Now, after his father Jacob died, his brothers were still fearful of Joseph, fearful that he would finally seek revenge for what they'd done to him. And here is their response in Genesis 50 verses 20 and 21. Genesis 50 verses 20 and 21. It says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now my question I have for you is in light of all that Joseph went through, 
Extreme suffering, right? I mean, how is this possible for someone to respond in that way? Why is Joseph not filled with anger, resentment, and bitterness? Well, I think that there are two insights that are going to prove helpful for us here as to why Joseph was not caught in the trap of offense. Number one, I think he had an unwavering belief in the sovereignty of God. Do you understand what that, the sovereignty of God means? It means that God is in ultimate control. He has a plan and he will work his plan out. You see, in Joseph's mind, who caused the suffering? God did. God did. He had a plan. God had a plan. And he used Joseph's brothers to bring about God's purposes through, now catch this, through, through the suffering of Joseph. The young 13-year-old boy who would rule over Egypt would not be ready until he was 30 years old. So for 17 years, Joseph suffered. And during that time, he had to learn obedience through patiently suffering in order that he might be a blessing to others. See, that's how God works through us. Now, this same lesson was learned through Jesus. Look at this verse here, Hebrews 5. It's up on the screen, Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, meaning Jesus... What did he do? He learned obedience from the things which he what? He suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. So he became, through suffering, a blessing. Sounds like Joseph, right? The second point I think that Joseph got is he's had to, at some point in time, he had to chose to forgive. And he chose to love. Because I'm sure Joseph was tempted to do what we all would do in that situation, to blame. Of course he was going to blame his brothers, right? For all his suffering. He may have even plotted his revenge. But while suffering, his belief in God's sovereignty led him, I believe, to forgive and then to love. Now how do I know that? Because if Joseph clung to bitterness, now listen to me here very carefully. If Joseph clung to bitterness and to vengeful thoughts, I believe that God would have left him in prison. Now why do I say that? Because if he had gotten out of prison with that heart motive and exacted his revenge upon his brothers, he would have killed Judah, from whose lineage Christ would descend. So I ask you this morning, how easily offended are you? Does all it take is someone to cut you off while you're driving? And you go into a fit of road rage? I think we need to be reminded that we are in the last days. It happened at Pentecost, but we are in the last days. And Jesus promised far greater offensives than an inconsiderate driver. 
He promised us that we, we would be betrayed just as he was by those close to us, even our own flesh and blood. Look at this. This is Mark 13 talking about the end times. What does it say? Brother will betray brother to death. That's what the intent was of Joseph's brothers towards him. Now, let's move on and talk about the story of David. I'm assuming we all are somewhat familiar with the story of King David. After God rejected Saul as the first king of Israel, he chose a young shepherd boy named David to be the next king. And God immediately went to work. The scriptures tell us that he sent an evil spirit to torment Saul as a way to bring David into Saul's service and begin preparing David to rule. And in this case, when Saul was tormented by this evil spirit, what would David do? He would play the harp and bring relief to Saul's sufferings. And eventually David would become a great warrior. He would defeat who? Goliath and many other enemies of of Israel, thus securing and expanding King Saul's reign. So how would Saul repay David for his loyalty and faithfulness? Well, 1 Samuel 18, 9 says this, that Saul looked at David with suspicion. He was coming back from his death, killing of uh, Goliath, and the women were singing what? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. So he looked upon David with suspicion from that day on. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18, if you can find it there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Chapter 18. And all David has done is faithfully serve his king and expand Saul's reign. And in verse 9, he looked upon David with suspicion. Look what happens in verses 10 and 11, the very next verse. Suspicion turns to raving anger and madness. This is what Saul does next to David. Now it came about on the next day, the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual and his spear was in Saul's hand and Saul hurled the spear for he thought I will pin David to the wall but David escaped from his presence twice. So twice Saul has tried to Pin David to the wall, take his life with a spear. But he didn't do it just once or twice, he does it a third time. In 1 Samuel 19, verses 9 and 10, it says this Now there was the evil spirit from the Lord on Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the harp with his hand. Verse 10 Saul tried to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away out of Saul's presence so that he stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. Innocent. Yet three times a raving lunatic king tried to kill him with a spear. But the next verse, after verse 10 in chapter 19, I've tried to kill him my way, now I'm going to send assassins. Look at this. Then Saul's messengers, then Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him in order to put him to death in the morning. Spears, assassins. Well, from this point on, David is a fugitive on the run. And he loses his home. His best friend, Jonathan, who happens to be the son of Saul, he loses that relationship. David was married to the king's daughter, Michael. 
she would be married off to another man. So he loses his home, his best friend, his wife, all because of Saul. Saul refused to turn over the kingdom to him and submit to God's will. And in a state of offense, Saul was jealous and angry, and he's determined to eliminate this threat from his kingdom. That is David. So he hunts David relentlessly. 1 Samuel 23, verse 14. It says, David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds. This is amazing. And remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day. Let me say that again. Saul sought him every day. So he was on the run every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. What would it be like to be on the run every day of your life? In one sense, he'd be like, you remember the name Yasser Arafat? Kind of caught between the Jews and the Palestinians and so on, and he, he you know, a new place he had to stay every night. This is David's life now. And what did he do to deserve this, by the way? Nothing. Often David was close to death. Look at 1 Samuel 23, 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and where is David and his men? They're on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. For Saul and his men were surrounding David and his men to seize them. Folks, this was David's life for 13 years. And during that, that trial, David would be tested to see if he would take matters in his own hand. One time when Saul was in pursuit of David, remember the story? He went in the cave to relieve himself. And David and his men were hiding in the cave. And his men saw this as God delivering Saul into his hand. And they say this in 1 Samuel 24, verses 4 and 6. Behold, this is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I am about to give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly. It came about afterward that David's conscience bothered him, because he had cut off the edge of Saul's robe. But he said, so he said to his men, Far be it from me because of the Lord that I should do this thing to my Lord." the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him since he is the Lord's anointed. What would have happened if he had taken Saul's life in that cave? His men would have fought him and he would have a rightful claim to the throne because Jonathan would have submitted to, to David and he would have been king and all the suffering, gone. But you see, he chooses to suffer. And David would leave vengeance in the hands of God. Later on, we get a glimpse into the, the pain David was enduring, the pain of being rejected by a father. Look at verses 11 to 15. David's crying out, now my father, see. So he sees Saul as a father, a father who's, who has rejected him, who was trying to take his life. Indeed, see the edge of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the edge of your robe and did not kill you. No one perceived that there is no evil or rebellion in my hands, and I have not sinned against you, though you are lying in wait for my life to take it. So we want them to know, I am innocent. I have no ill intent towards you. May the Lord judge 
between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing, a dead dog, a single flea? The Lord therefore be judged and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now this man, David, obviously believes in what? The sovereignty of God. Now God would administer another test for David to see if he would seek revenge for the suffering Saul inflicted upon him. David got so tired of running and living this life. Do you remember what he did? He went to live with the Philistines just to get a, a break from this. Verse Samuel 26, verses 8 to 11. Then Abishai said to David, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now therefore, please let me strike him with the spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. Saul and his men were asleep. Saul was in the center, and David and his men could walk in and very quickly and stab Saul and kill him and, and go on. End his suffering. Verse 9, But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, he will go down to battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul has tried to murder David for 13 years. He has taken away his home, his friends, his wife, his dignity. He has caused untold physical stress and emotional pain? How would David respond when Saul died? Second Samuel, verse, you know, everyone turn there, Second Samuel chapter one, verses 11 and 12. This is, a, this is it's, it's mind-boggling, David's response, when he found out that this man who caused 13 years of intense suffering has died. And David took hold of his clothes and tore them. So also did all the men who were with him. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan, for the people of the Lord of the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David even wrote a song commemorating Saul and Jonathan. I want you to listen to a portion of what David wrote. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 1 again, verses 17 and 19 and 22 and 24. Then David, by the way, he made sure that this was taught to everybody. Verse 19, your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Verse 22, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life. Saul was difficult to live with, folks. I mean, he was difficult. Yet David chooses to remember him as one who was beloved and pleasant in their life. O daughters of Israel, verse 24, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Folks, I ask you, how is it possible to respond that way? Why is David not filled with anger, resentment, and bitterness? His actions are not the actions of an offended person, are they? 
This is why God said this about David. You remember this? The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. You see, God's heart is full of compassion and mercy. He is slow to anger. He abounds in loving kindness. And you can see the similarities between God and Joseph and David, can you not? They both believed, Saul and Jonathan, both, or Joseph and David, they both believed in God's sovereignty. They believed that what happened to them was not outside of God's will. They embraced suffering. They learned obedience, and they were stronger men for it as they patiently endured and let God do their work within him. And again, the words of Jesus ring true. Remember this? This verse right here? Not only will brother betray brother, but who else will betray? A father and his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. This is the time that we are living in. This is the last days. Now I'm going to close with this story. I got, again, from the book, uh, The Bait of Satan. It's a story involving John Bevere. And it's a little bit more applicable maybe to us. But notice that Joseph and David weren't cut off at the intersection and flew into a fit of road rage, were they? They suffered far worse and yet remain unoffended. John Bevere shares this. For seven years I served full-time in the ministry of helps and pastored youth before God released my wife and me to our present ministry. While I was a youth pastor, there was a man who did not like me or the message I preached. Normally this would not bother me, but this man had a position of authority over me. I believe God had told me to bring a strong word of purity and boldness to the young people and his son was in my group. Conviction was stirring in this young man's heart. One day, he came to us crying. He was upset because he felt the lifestyle he saw at home fell short of what I was challenging him and the other young people to follow. This incident and other personality conflicts seemed to make his father determined to get rid of me. Sound familiar? He would go to the head pastor to stir his anger against me with false accusations. Then he would turn around and tell me how the senior pastor was against me, but that he was standing up for me. There were assorted critical staff memos, none that bore my name, but they identified me in other ways. He would smile to my face, but his intention was to destroy me. Several members of the youth group said that they heard I was to be fired. It was this man's son spreading the news, not in a malicious way, but just because he was repeating what he'd heard at home. I was angry and confused. I went to this man, and he admitted saying this, but he said he was just repeating the senior pastor's thoughts. Months went by. There seemed to be no way to alleviate the situation. He had even severed all contact between my senior pastor and me. This was not the case for me, but for all the pastors that were not in his favor. My family was under constant pressure, never knowing whether we would remain at the church or be put out. We had bought a house. My wife was pregnant. We had nowhere to go. I did not want to send out resumes. I believe God had brought me to that church, and I was staying with no plan. 
My wife was a nervous wreck. Honey, I know they're going to fire you, she said. Everyone is telling me they are. He replied, they didn't hire me and they can't fire me without God's approval, I told her. She thought I was denying the circumstances and begged me to quit. Finally, the news came down that the decision to fire me had been made. The senior pastor announced to the church that changes were going to come into the youth group. I still have not spoken with him about the conflict with the leader he had put over me. I was scheduled to meet with him and that man the next day. God very specifically impressed upon me not to defend myself. When I met with my pastor the next day, I was surprised to find the pastor sitting alone in his office. He looked at me and said, John, God sent you to this church. I am not letting you go. I was relieved. God had protected me at the last moment. Why is this man after you, he asked. Please go to him and make it right between you and him. Shortly after that meeting, I received written evidence of a decision the leader had made regarding my area of responsibility. It exposed his true motives. I was ready to take it to the senior pastor. That day I paced the floor and I prayed for 45 minutes trying to overcome the uncomfortable feeling I had. I kept saying, God, this man has been dishonest. He's been wicked. He must be exposed. He's a destructive force in this ministry. I must tell the senior pastor the way he really is. I further justified my intentions to expose him. Everything I am reporting is fact and documented. It's not emotional. If he is not stopped, his wickedness will infiltrate the entire church. Falling in frustration, I blurted out, God, you don't want me to expose him, do you? When I spoke these words, the peace of God flooded my heart, and I shook my head in amazement. I knew God did not want me to do anything. So I threw away the evidence. Later, when I could look at the scene more objectively, I realized I had wanted to avenge myself more than protect anyone in the ministry. I'd reasoned myself into believing my motives were unselfish. My information was accurate, but my motives were impure. Time passed, and one day as I was praying outside the church before office hours, the man drove up to the church. God impressed upon me to go to him and humble myself. Immediately I was defensive. No, Lord. He needs to come to me. He is the one causing all the problems. I continued to pray, but again the Lord insisted that I go to him immediately and humble myself, and I knew it was from God. I phoned him from my office and went to his, but what I said and how I said it was, uh, was much different from how it would have been if God hadn't dealt with me. With all sincerity, I ask for forgiveness. I have been critical and judgmental of you, I confessed. He immediately softened. We talked for an hour. From that day forward, his attacks against me stopped, even though a problem continued between him and some of the other pastors. Six months later, while I was ministering out of the country, all the wrong this man had done was exposed to the senior pastor. It had nothing to do with me, but with other areas of the ministry, what he was doing was much worse than what I knew, and he was fired immediately. Judgment had come, but not by my hand. The very thing he tried to do to me happened to him. However, when it happened to him, I was not happy. I grieved for him and his family. I understood his pain. I had gone through it myself at his hands. Because I had forgiven him six months previously, 
I now loved him and did not wish for him. If he had been fired when I was angry with him a year earlier, I would have rejoiced. I knew then I was truly free from the offense I'd harbored. Humility and refusing to avenge myself were the keys that freed me from my prison of offense. A year later, I saw him at an airport. I was was overwhelmed with the love of God, and I ran over to him where he was standing and hugged him. I was genuinely happy when he told me things were well with him. If I had ever gone to him and humbled myself months earlier in his office, I wouldn't have been able to look him in the eye that day at the airport. Several years have passed since I've seen him, but I feel only love and a sincere desire to see him in God's will. You get cut off the intersection and you fly into a fit of road rage. Yet here are three people. Two that suffered greatly. Imprisonment, great emotional, physical stress and pain, and yet they somehow were not offended. And then this young man here. So I want you to wrestle with this question. Ask yourself, why am I so easily offended? I know some of you. You know that I can, when I get behind the wheel of a car, (laughs) it's like a different person comes out. Right? Next week will be the last sermon in this Angry Birds, how to do a conflict. And I'm going to tell you how you can live an offense-free life. How you can avoid the trap of offense. How you can prove that you are indeed a true child of God. In the meantime, just stay off the road when I'm driving, okay? (laughs) Let's pray. Got a hearty amen for that one. Very good. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. May your blessing be upon all of us and upon our business meeting coming up in about five minutes. And all God's people said, amen. For those of you that are are leaving, that's fine. Just go ahead and, and take off. We will start the business meeting at 11.50. It's about five minutes from now. And be done by 11.52. Does that sound good? All right. Thank you.